Welcome to the Mostly Legal Podcast, a show where we go behind the scenes of the business of law and interview the people who make this job a true profession. Our guest today is a staple of the legal management industry, having been a firm leader for over 45 years. I'm Amanda Copeless. I'm the executive director of Sheffield, Lohman & Wilson. And I'm Rob Joyner, chief revenue officer at Centerbase. Today we speak with Teresa Walker. She is a name many of you will recognize, and I'm so excited to hear her wisdom that she'll share with us. Let's dive in. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. I have the pleasure of introducing you. I like to say you are, and you like to say this as well, a legal operations guru because you have been in legal operations for a minute and a half, I think is the proper way to say <laughs> that. And uh, formerly, you were the COO of Waller Lansden, which is a large firm based out of Tennessee, right? Yes. Nashville. Okay. Nashville. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Say Nashville because that makes it a lot cooler than just saying Tennessee, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so... I think the interesting backstory with you, and you're actually the third guest in a row who went to a firm like or went into a position straight out of either an associate's degree or right out of high school. And I'm so fascinated by that concept. But I think the most fascinating thing is that you have been at Waller Lansden for 45 years. Did I miss anything? Oh, well, and I mean, you also were president of ALA and you've been super active in that. And the list of organizations you've been involved with is about a mile long. And I'll let our listeners pull your bio up from show notes. But did I get the gist of it? Yes, absolutely, Amanda. And thank you both, uh, Rob and Amanda, both for having me speak with you all today. I'm certainly excited to be doing this. And yes, I have been at Waller Lansden Dorchin Davis, based in Nashville, Tennessee, currently about 275 attorneys, four offices across three states, uh, but I've been here for our almost 45 years. Next month will be 45 years. Now, I always laugh and say I was a mere child, like (laughs) grade school, elementary, whatever, but I was a mere child when I started, but the truth is that is not the truth, but I already uh, yeah. told Rob. I already told Rob he can't make any joke about how he's younger than you have been doing this. Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you, Rob. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, I wasn't going to make a joke. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Uh, but uh, these days, just about everyone that walks in the door at Waller Lanston, uh, I've been involved in, in working in this industry for longer than they have been alive. So I'm I'm used to all the jokes and sarcasm. <laughs> That's but interesting no. to me just because people jump around all the time, right? They go from company to company, firm to firm. What's kept you there for so long? And what's been so, you, what's that exciting factor that keeps you coming back every day? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I came along into this industry not too long after ALA was founded. If we all remember, for those of us who are ALAers, uh, as I certainly am, ALA was founded, this is our 50th year, actually last year, 2021 was our 50th year. So when you think about the fact that I've been at Waller for 45, well, this was a new profession in the legal industry. Um, Yes, we had bookkeepers, we had librarians, perhaps, depending on Mm -hmm. the size of the firm. But even when I joined Waller, we had 16 lawyers, okay, and People who took on the office management, business management role, whatever it was called at the time, uh, and there were both terms used at the time, 
they really had just grown into it for the most part. Or perhaps they had done accounting elsewhere for the years and happened into the legal space. So I came along at just that time when legal administrators were just becoming to kind of evolve and be a thing. And so lucky for me, I just came along at the right time and literally have grown up in this industry. I came into Waller through a college uh, internship practicum, and I had to go and do this practicum for one of the semesters. And lo and behold, they needed someone on a permanent basis. So even though it started out as an internship, before I really knew it, it was it was a permanent position. They sucked and you in. Yes, absolutely right. For 45 in. years. <laughs> yeah, for 45 <laughs> years later. But, um, you know, I, it, it's one of the things that has kept me at Waller for all those years is the opportunities I've been given. And that's everything from, literally, I put in the first computer first accounting system, I actually started work in the legal industry when there were no accounting programs. Wow. There were no word processors. They were literally keeping time on these, it was called a, a one-right system. Yep. And yep. you guys, I, I doubt you can remember it. I remember. Anyway. I, yeah, I've seen them. Okay. Little it wasn't like a paper. museum, but I've seen it. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Uh, these strips of paper, and they had a little carbon strip that ran down the back, and the the attorneys would write their time entry, and it would be filed away into this little metal box until the point in time at which it was time to send a bill, and we would pull those out and try to cobble together some sort of a bill. So literally <laughs> started like that, and it was in 1983 that we actually put in the first accounting system with a mini computer, Hewlett Packard, I think, good Lord, I can't remember that far back, but uh, first computer system in 1983, and then we evolved into PCs in the late 80s and local area networks, and so I got to grow up learning all of that, Yeah, Uh, and the first fax machines, imagine that. Oh, right. Oh, I mean... Amanda lived through all this, too. (laughs) Okay, listen, I didn't live through all of this, but yeah. Um, And the first mm -hmm. Lexus terminal, uh, uh, literally, there were separate terminals that were used to do Lexus research, and it was so novel, and you were so cool if you had a Lexus terminal. And I also remember buying the first laser printer, Xerox, and I think it was mid-'80s. And you'll never guess how much it cost. I'm going to ask both of you to guess. How much did that laser printer cost? Well, I think when we bought at my house the first laser printer, I mean, it was maybe over $1,000 just for a personal one. I mean, I think laser printers are still that. So I'm going to go higher. I'm going to definitely play the Price is Right rules and say 1,001 just so I could be higher than Rob. Well, definitely. Uh, I, was gonna say 4, I was going to say 4,000 is the number I was going to come up with. And well, guess. that's kind of close. 4,000 to the 10th. So it was 40,000 bucks. Holy oh, my moly. gosh. 
forty thousand bucks for the for first a laser printer laser. in the eighties. Yes, yes, in the mid eighties, forty thousand bucks. And wow. I'll never forget because the the guy, the sales rep at Xerox, uh, and we bought a few other items at the same time. But the first sales guy was like freaking out because he'd never had anyone hand him a check for eighty five thousand bucks. Oh my God. And so literally we paid in cash for the first laser printer and a few wow. other uh, items back then. So yes, a little bit has changed in the time <laughs> that I've been involved in this industry. So we did, uh, like I said, graduated on to PCs once those came about and local area networks and just been involved in having put together all those systems, this is, accounting this systems, is fascinating. networks, so, so- everything. So what, I actually have a few follow-up questions that come from that, but <laughs> what, uh, the firm's been around since 1905, is that yes, right? Yes, that's right, that's right. You know, you don't hear of a lot of firms being around for that long. What do you think has been a key to the success of the firm and the longevity of the firm being around? Being in Nashville mm-hmm. has a okay. little bit to do with it, okay, but also just the the quality of people that Waller has brought in, at least in my years here. And I actually have a book that uh, is sitting here on my bookshelf that was written by one of the early, early, early founders because the name has changed numerous times. (laughs) Um, I think the last time the name changed was in 1968. Oh, wow. But just reading that book and hearing the sorts of work that those people were doing at the time when the firm was originally put together and of course the relationships and it was kind of like the circuit lawyers, you know, like the circuit judges we used Mm -hmm. to hear about, but the circuit lawyers who moved around and worked all across the country, so to speak. Um, But I think just really smart, intelligent lawyers with high integrity and that valued a a great work product. So people in culture. Yes, absolutely. Uh-huh. People and culture. Resounding and, theme. Yes. And and Nashville became a little bit of a financial center in the late 60s, early 70s, 80s. Not certainly anything like Atlanta, for instance. But uh, we had some brokerage firms based here and had the great fortune of working very closely. And we also founded, uh, chartered rather, the largest for-profit healthcare company in the world, which is Hospital Corporation of America in 1968. And so from that, so many things have evolved and healthcare has become a huge industry here in Nashville. So the fact that we were kind of there when that was chartered certainly has a lot to do with the fact that Waller has uh, become a prominent player in the, the healthcare industry. So good quality people and, you know, a lot of it, is luck, frankly, being at the right place at the right time and right. building great relationships as so many things in life depend upon. So then kind of transitioning a little bit, I'm loving the stories, you know, about about how much things have changed and the role of in watching IT because that was a functional specialist and that was an area of specialty that you didn't have to have as a law firm administrator when you started. So how have you seen the role of the administrator change over these years, other than adding technology? What else, what other changes have you seen? 
Well, I, th- I think this profession has grown tremendously. Like I mentioned earlier, some of the titles used when I first got involved were office manager and business mm-hmm. manager. And certainly those are still used in some uh, organizations these days. But now you've got chief operating officers, you have executive directors, you have chief strategy officers, chief people officers. The number of titles is growing um, right. exponentially every year. And um, I, I think it's just been great to see in the last few years how innovation mm-hmm. has helped. And, and not that we've been innovative, because I always say we move glacially slow in the legal industry, <laughs> as we all know. Rob's and, like shaking his head. He uh-huh. knows. Yes. He gets yes. it. Yep. He Nothing, sells into it every day. I, I replace software that's older than I am. <laughs> you have, indeed. <laughs> and investment. Uh, law firms, uh, they invest, but they invest in people. They are yeah. not as, for instance, who has a research and development department in the legal industry? Yet look at how many yeah. corporate entities have research and development departments and devote a great deal of revenue annually. Right. For that purpose. Law firms don't do that. As long as they've got an ink pen and a yellow pad, they're good to go, you know? I've never thought about it like that. (laughs) And so there's no allocation of resources for looking at what's coming down the road. What does the future bring? Um, The the legal industry, as one partner here puts it, it's all about (laughs) more beer now. (laughs) And uh, that's what he always says. All the partners want to get out all the money every year, and they don't leave any for research and development and investment. So Uh, that hasn't changed, (laughs) right? No, that has not changed. Uh, In a few firms across the country, like uh, Next Law Labs, you know, some of the really largest of large firms are doing a bit towards research and development these days. But for the most part, the average law firm, no, they don't. I I still think it's interesting. You know, I'm a sales and marketing guy. And when you look at marketing in a law firm, right, it's it's marketing for a law firm. Oh, here we go. Are you going to bag on our marketing? Not for everybody. Not for everybody. But it means, hey, let's bring somebody else in with their book of business, right? Yes. Yes. And they still don't invest heavily in marketing and, and driving things in the door. Now, there's certain practice areas that do. But overall, it's not a big area of spend for firms. Right. The whole sales concept is taboo in law firms. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm not a salesman. Yeah. Well, I've had that exact conversation with associates. You do know that you signed on for a sales role, right? Like you, you don't understand, but you're selling yourself and you will sell yourself for the rest of your career. You are in sales. And, and, you know, I speak to like Vanderbilt Law School. I spoke there recently uh, for a group on blockchain, actually. But one of the reasons uh, the professor brought me in, who's a dear friend of mine, Kristen Johns, one of the reasons she brought me in is because of my history in the legal industry. And just to tell these young law school students, second and third years, here's what you're really going into. Right. Here's how this really works. And one of my first points is, you must learn to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. Vanderbilt Law School does not teach that to you. Right. Few law schools do. Few law schools teach collaboration. 
And the problem for us as legal administrators, executive directors, whatever the role may be, is when they walk in our door, they're not collaborative. They're competitive. They're the other yes. word, the other C word. <laughs> they're competitors because in law school, who was number one in the class? Who was right. number two? Who was order of the coif? You know, who was the law review editor? All those sorts of competitions. And what I tell them is you need to check that at the door now. Because what right. we need you to do in the legal, in the in the law firm and in the legal industry is to learn how to cooperate with each other and sell each other and cross-sell. And mm-hmm. as you say, they they really don't think, I, most of them have not thought, how do clients get into a law firm? You know, they, they are going to, for the most part, think, I show up and people give me work. Right. And that's true for a short period of time. For a short period of time, for your first couple of years, absolutely. But learning how to present, how to relate to people who do not have law degrees, those people, they just don't have the concept that you've got to come in and collaborate and learn how to relate to people, i.e. clients of the law firm, who do not have law degrees. So you've got to speak plain English. You've got to write plain English. You've got to think of them as consumers uh, in a whole different way. And it's a real challenge. We still write like we're writing from, you know, the folks wearing the wigs and the long black robes and everything, right? (laughs) Um, But hopefully... Here to four, where through four, yeah. Yeah, therefore, whereby, uh, all those (laughs) sorts of things. So you know, just trying to reach them to understand the things you're learning in law school, that's the price of admission. That does not make you a good lawyer, nor a good professional working alongside lawyers. You really have to learn how to work with consumers and clients and providing that that client service. It's a lot like the servant leadership that we in ALA or other uh, organizations, ILTA, LMA, NALP, all those different ones, um, we understand that because that's our lives. We live those right. lives. I love it. You're speaking some of my words, cross-sell. Oh, yes. Yeah. Got to be a salesman, I consumer. I love oh, it. I love gosh. it. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, continuing to move on to another topic, you know, you've worked alongside nine different managing partners. It's crazy to me. In you your have, opinion, you have had to train nine of them just so <laughs> she's nodding your, her head. Yes, yes, yes. Definitely. Sorry, Rob. I'm sorry. Go, go it's for okay. The let me know when I'll you're shut done. Up. No, I'll, I'll let you answer your Go ahead. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Go nope, ahead. I'm done. You want to take the nope. question too? Nope. Okay. Go. I'll go ahead. <laughs> so, in your opinion, what makes a successful managing partner? Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. You guys are really giving me a soapbox. Uh, <laughs> I do not think that lawyers are um, very successful as leaders yeah. in organizations, I, I, in law firms. And I will tell you, I again, you, you all mentioned I've worked with nine managing partners. And the only one I can think of that it was natural, that leadership was natural for him, is the one who had really, he, he had a law degree, but he never practiced law. As wow. soon as he walked yeah. out of law school here in this town, 
he went into business. Right. He ran an insurance company, a huge insurance company, and traveled internationally and, and everything. But he came from a business background, uh-huh. and he had an entirely different perspective right. on leadership of lawyers. And mm-hmm. I love Dr. Larry Richard. You can't hardly talk to me without letting me tell you a little bit about Dr. Larry Richard. But uh, Larry has followed the personalities of lawyers for most of his career. He's a lawyer, too, practiced law, but he's made his life's work really in understanding personalities and, and their careers and what makes them different. And autonomy is one of those key traits that Larry speaks about and urgency, and low sociability. Uh, and so I start... Every I'm single talk- lawyer that listens to our podcast just went unsubscribe. No, Larry, go look at LawyerBrain.com. And and the rest of us uh, who are not lawyers, the light bulb went off. And, and if you read Larry's work, it'll definitely go off because you will relate completely to what I'm saying. And Rob, coming from the kind of marketing sales background, Larry really talks about with low sociability, high urgency, and a sense of autonomy. Well, that explains the difficulty in marketing, selling, and business development right there. You've got three traits that work against that. Mm-hmm. Lawyers are much more comfortable coming in, sitting down at their desk, keeping their head down all the day long, writing out whatever, typing it out these days. Um, that's what they like. That's what they enjoy. Very few. And I've got a few here at our firm who are masters at business development and selling, for lack of a better word, but in developing client relationships. They are masters of it, but they are huge people. They're very social. They're very oriented that way. And so I love just looking at those things and realizing, you know, and I think I said this yesterday, Amanda, as we were kind of talking, there's a yin and yang. Legal administrators serve that servant leadership role. The leadership role in a law firm, it's very challenging. You've got these highly autonomous people. No one wants to be told what to do. Everyone wants to do it their way. And so here you are trying to cat herd, if you will, <laughs> uh, all these people. And, you know, David Meister is another person I've read a good bit on his work. And if, if you haven't read his work, I highly recommend it as well. But, you know, David really kind of honed in quickly on these traits that even though Larry hasn't hadn't put his work together, I guess, at that time, but between those two people, you really get the perspective of understanding. Lawyers, leading lawyers is very difficult. Now, I'm going to say something that's very controversial or could be controversial. Right. I love it. So I'm going to get out. you guys in trouble. But one of the reasons I think lawyers have a very difficult time leading in law firms is because they feel that it's a lot more like their undergrad or law school fraternities. Right. It's a fraternity (laughs) or it's a sorority. And if I have to make a very difficult decision as a chairman or or 
managing partner, whatever the role may be called, if I have to make a difficult decision about my fraternity brother, which is really how I view this organization so often, that's very difficult. That's right. very difficult. So I, I think that just not having that business background, that business training, and, and just the personality, all those things kind of come together to go, it is really difficult to manage lawyers. And I will say the one managing partner that I mentioned earlier who was a natural because of his business background, I think he'd probably still be here today, but unfortunately, he passed away after 10 years of serving as our full-time managing partner. Hmm. He really got it because of that business perspective that he had. And so, so, you know, you tell that story and then you call us servant leaders, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's more like sucker leaders. <laughs> uh, there are all sorts of pros and cons that come along with the job, as we well know. Teresa, you touched on it a little bit, but what factors contribute to that to a successful managing partner firm administrator relationship? Uh, you cannot be a fraternity brother or yeah. sorority sister. First thing, you cannot have cliques, for lack of a better way to describe it. Everyone has to be treated fairly. Uh, I heard one person, uh, one lawyer many years ago, very very smart kind of country lawyer, uh, who was very loved here. He referred to the average person that he would meet walking down the street as a potential juror. He was a big litigator. And he said, every person I meet is a potential juror. I give them respect. I show them the respect that uh, I think they deserve because someday they may be judging me. Wow. You know, and on behalf of my client, I need to be sure that I have uh, done everything I could to represent them well and to make the jurors, the potential person walking down the street, appreciate me and have the same level of respect for me as I showed to them. So I think they have to be able to be very fair. They have to be highly confidential, which, okay, back to the fraternity. What happens in a fraternity? The first little rumor that starts Man, the whole, the whole crew knows it, right? Uh, you can't do that. You cannot do that when you're in law firm leadership because you're really dealing not only with people's careers, but so many times you're dealing with people's lives. And I unfortunately have had too many experiences where people's lives, whether it was, and mental health has really become uh, a bit of a passion for me, in this industry because I see the damage that has that occurs, whether it's the damage to families, the damage to individuals, you know, the damage to careers. There's so many different things. And it is, we had a little pandemic in our industry long before coronavirus showed up, right? And that's the mental health because of the stress that the yeah. lawyers are under every, every day. And technology, unfortunately, makes that a little bit worse than it used to be. But I think as a leader, whether, again, it's chairman or managing partner, you really have to be very people-oriented. You have to be very high in empathy. Uh, and that's another one of Larry's traits that Larry describes lawyers as typically low in empathy. <laughs> He's got this figured out, folks, I tell you. 
But at any rate, I think they had to be very empathetic. They had to be fair. They had to be uh, impartial. They had to abandon, not abandon their friends, but they cannot show favoritism and have cliques and, and that sort of thing. And then they had to be strategic. I think so you've left talk- one out. I'm sure I left a bunch out. <laughs> the what I think you've left out is rely on your legal administrator. Your well, absolutely. Administrator, right. And and right. so I think they have to recognize the value of everyone in the organization. Everybody's bringing something different. Not just the people who have those degrees, uh, the law degrees, but everyone in the organization is bringing something special. And so they have to really learn how to get the most out of everyone that they're trying to lead. And that's very difficult. I get it. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's a hard job. It's a very hard job. And I will tell you, uh, anyone who does that job for more than about uh, seven or eight years, they're in it for the long term. I usually see about that seven or eight year mark. Yeah. They don't rely on their legal administrator, executive director, whatever the case may be, if they don't rely on them a lot, turn loose of all the stuff that they're not that great at to begin with and let that legal administrator run with that and take care of it and stay out of it and not micromanage it. If they don't do that, that candle of uh, time frame for them in terms of hitting that burnout point, usually six, seven years, they're done. They've had it especially if they're really making progress with the organization because they're not going to be a lot of complaining. And, and as we know, first time they try to implement a standard in the organization, for instance, oh dear, (laughs) Sally, you know, whether it's word versus word perfect, I mean, something so simple, uh, right? But you've got people going all directions and there's no making people happy. So, um, you mentioned, I mentioned in your intro, you were president of ALA association of legal administrators, which side note, even though I t- do a podcast, Rob, I have to tell you the story just real quick. And I promise I'll get back to Teresa this weekend. My husband and I were driving in a car and he, I said something about ALA and he goes, Oh yeah. The association of law association. And I'm like, how do you not know what ALA stands for? I talk about it all the time and he listens every single week. So Association of Legal Administrators. Come on, Nick. I know. Come on, Nick. Um, you were president of that association, and you also have been a very longtime member. What changes have you seen in the association over the years, good and bad? And what would you like to see going forward? What would you like your legacy to be as a as a past president? Oh my goodness, that's a tough one. Uh, it would not be law vantage. It would not be law vantage. I had to throw that there's out. A, there's an inside joke there, Ooh. Rob. They tried to change the name of the association at one point to Law Vantage, and it did not go well. Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, and, but but, and I I got a lot of support, but I also got a lot of uh, criticism uh, back during that time, and. <laughs> Uh, you deal with it, right? You right. just you take the good and the bad and you roll with it. But I do think uh, as an organization for leading education and providing resources, and a lot of that is community, uh, of course, within our organization, where sharing is the norm. I know I walk into a, a variety of other organizations that I've been a part in, and 
people can be taken back by the level of sharing and cooperation and collegiality that the ALA group just provides to everyone who's a member of it. And I think that's that's huge. And continue to see that grow and weather all the storms. And there have been a variety of storms, Love Vantage <laughs> being one of them. Uh, but, you know, weather those storms, I think, has really just helped the organization grow. And we have to realize 50 years, uh, sustaining an organization like that for 50 years, and its membership still pushing 9,000, I believe it is, that's that's a real that's a real star in some crowns of the early founders, uh, some of whom are still around, of course, as we know. But um, I've I've seen it grow, just continue to grow, and be. I call it the university. I call it legal management university because right up until the last few years, when Denver Stern College of Law started offering, you know, a degree, mm-hmm. there's not been any place to go. Uh, from like a college, university, or, or we've talked about training this, program, yeah. Yeah. there's not been one. So ALA, especially for me, has been my university for legal management uh, study and learning over the years. And your hope, your hope is that it will continue to do that, right? Absolutely. And just get stronger and stronger. And I think there's so many more roles coming in. Director right. of knowledge, knowledge management the whole innovation, mm-hmm. uh, those titles, uh, there aren't, to my knowledge, currently organizations per se that wrap their arms around that, even from the financial perspective, the CFOs. There's not a, a legal CFO organization. I want to continue to see ALA grow to provide uh, community and strong educational resources for all of the new titles and new roles. We've got to keep ourselves fresh. And I know April Campbell, all too well, and Mike Bumgardner, and all the other board members, all of you board members, uh, (laughs) that is definitely high on your list of things to accomplish, needless to say. It's a very long list. I was not at all prepared. They say when you volunteer to be on the board that we are a working board, and I'm putting that in air quotes, and I thought, oh, ha, 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 And then you realize, oh, my gosh, you really are. There are task force, and you're you're literally doing – it's not just building the strategic direction, but you are putting out work product on a regular basis, and oh, I've yes. enjoyed it. And I love watching what boards have done before and how we're able to build on that. And so yeah. – um, I'm excited. Absolutely. That. that my year as the president was the longest 10 years of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> something like that. Uh, but at any rate, uh, no, uh, all, all the folks who volunteer and step up to take on these roles. It's, it's a huge obligation, but it's also a huge opportunity. I know so many people literally across the globe as a result of having served in that role. So, Teresa, I learned about the College of Law Practice Management. What is it? Oh, my goodness. How do you get inducted? And then, <sighs> you know, anything else you have? I know they have a conference. Could you fill us in? Yes. Somewhere? Yes, we do. Uh, and I love this group. Um, I love ALA, and I've been involved in that forever. But the college I'm a lot newer to, 2014-15 uh-huh. is when I was inducted. And out of the blue one day, I got a call from Tom Clay of Altman Weil. And if you don't know Tom, he's been one of the leading law firm management consultants uh, over the last 
30 years probably, got a call from Tom Clay out of the blue, and he said, and we had worked with Tom at my firm, so we definitely were on good terms with each other, and he called and said, just want to let you know that today you've been inducted to the College of Law Practice Management. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Tom, that's great. What is that? Okay, you know? what, did I, what did I just yeah, sign up for? <laughs> exactly. And I just had just a little inkling of what I had heard about it just a little bit. Um, but man, once I have gotten engaged with that group, it, it is tremendous. It, it is a group of people from across the legal industry. It may be a judge. It may be a lawyer. It may be an executive director, chief operating officer. It may be a corporate legal operations uh, guru. My good friend Connie Brenton, one of the key folks in that group. And so it is people from all walks of legal management. Liam Brown with Elevate, who was one of the largest and early uh, ALSAPs or alternative business structures out of the gate. It's people from every walk of life that touch the legal industry. And it's people who have been involved in seeing the legal industry mature and have contributed beyond just their day-to-day work in the organizations that they worked for or perhaps they founded. There are a lot of legal marketing individuals in the group, people from all different walks of life. Some technologists, definitely uh, entrepreneurs, of all sorts, who are bringing legal software, you name it. But it's people who have sustained their contribution to the legal industry above that of just their normal day job, if you will. So it's, and that, it's that little extra, right? That little extra of contribution? I or think it's that a passion. Lot extra? It's, it's that passion. Okay. The passion for the industry and seeing it be bigger and better and greater than what it is today. And that's why the Futures Conference, or the college conference, is called the Futures Conference. And it's the college is the College of Law Practice Management. It started out years ago as a little subgroup with the ABA, and then eventually, I think, kind of splintered off from there. But you do have to be nominated by someone who is already a fellow of the college, And then you go before a review board of the executive committee of the college, kind of like a little pre-screening. And then the entire board of trustees reviews each submission. And at least two fellows of the college are involved in submitting a nomination of someone to become a fellow. So stupid question, it's not actually a college. No, <laughs> no. For no. those of us who are behind. So, it, so it, if it, I it's attend. It's like the College of um, Trial Practitioners. Okay, right. Of got it. Trust got and it. Estate Lawyers. Same thing. Okay. So if I were to attend a conference, what would the topics be? Oh, my gosh. As the Futures Conference, and I steered, uh, co-chaired the 2019 and 2020 conference. For instance, at 2019, we talked about quantum computing. Oh. Yeah, okay. right. We actually, fortunately for me, it was based, it was here in Nashville. And so because I'm based here, I brought someone out of Oak Ridge Laboratories who worked, works on quantum computing, uh, developing 
the world's quantum computers, and I think the uh, the largest one currently is based still in Oak Ridge. But we brought someone with that program here to speak because so many of the people in the college had never heard of it. So right. we wanted to be out there from an innovation perspective, introducing new principles of things they may not have heard about uh, and new opportunities coming down the road. And so also leadership of all sorts of perspectives. Um, because the community is so diverse as to how they come into the organization, you have to have topics that are uh, very, very diverse as well. The conference that just concluded in January uh, was around ESG. A lot of focus around ESG, uh, diversity and inclusion, um, as well as technology. So it, it uh, covered a number of different topics. And so it, it's uh, a, a very diverse group with very diverse topics, but all trying to be leading of the future. In 2020, we had Richard Suskin speak, uh, who is thought of as one of the lead gurus of innovation in the legal industry. And so we try to always kind of be out looking at where the industry is going, not where it is or has been. Does that help? Does that make a little sense? That does. Yes. Yes. You're, you, the definition of innovation, basically. Yes. And going against also what kind of is the core fundamental philosophy of many law firms, which is to toe the line and hold status quo and change when I have to change. Yes. No, no. <laughs> Everyone in this group, and I think the membership is over 300 currently. Most conferences are going to, especially if it's in person, 100 to 120. We have a conference coming up in October, uh, I believe it is, of 2022. Hopefully, we'll be in person in Las Vegas or at a law school. They are now. I've got now. I've got to get now. I've got. Uh, I love uh, Vegas, man. I love Vegas. (laughs) Well, uh, we've traditionally held them at law schools, and only in the last few years have we kind of deviated from that a little bit as we've gone virtual, of course. Um, but we had planned one in 2020 that was going to be in Vegas and unfortunately had to cancel it. So we're still trying to get back out to Vegas, but we'll see where, where all that plays out. But the organization is, it's one of those groups where when you walk in the room, you immediately feel like you're the dumbest person in the room. (laughs) That could be any room Rob walks into. No matter what you've done. You explain the conference, I won't be going. It'd be way over no. my head. No, it would not. It would not. You would so relate. <laughs> but um, it, it, you just feel like, man, how did I get in this room with these people who are so uh, knowledgeable and have a great perspective of what the future of law can be? Right. Very cool. So, Teresa, I have written down probably 30 more questions for you, but I know, I know, but we, we also have time. So we're going to go into our final segment, and I, I did give you plenty of prep warning for this. This is the Pitch Your Passion session, and I know you said you had a couple things you were tossing around, so um, take your time. Let's hear it. What is your passion? Oh, my goodness. Well, I've, I've got several, as you can probably tell, legal industry being one, but we've kind of exhausted that somewhat here, but... Uh, I am, and I'm sure if you look at my LinkedIn bio, you will see this, that I am a Southern gospel music singer, 
songwriter and head up a quartet, which is probably your first guest (laughs) to have that on their resume. First, probably uh, and only. Yeah, yeah. Probably last, first and last. (laughs) But uh, fortunately, having grown up here in the Bible Belt in in Tennessee, uh, going even back to my grandfather, he, he taught shape note singing school, which neither of you would know anything about. But it basically, people learned how to sing back many, many years ago based on the shape of notes. Uh, and okay. so if you've ever looked at like, uh, well, printed sheet music, yep. especially old sheet music, every note had a dif- different shape. Okay. And so it's the fa mi so so la. Yeah. Oh, re mi fa so la. I watched that movie. So I love that movie. Yeah. Love yeah, that movie. Yep. <laughs> but it really, so you would look at the shape of the note and that's the sound that you would make so my uh great-grandfather's taught that singing school and so I guess it's just in my veins but I've been in southern gospel music uh singing and and performing for many many years so that's definitely uh one of my passions uh, to say and you know now you're going to have to sing right (laughs) No. I mean, there's no getting around it. You can't say you're passionate about something and not go for it. Oh, At least me. give us a little like sound of music, do, re, mi, fa, so. Oh, well, I did that just a little bit. But uh, I do want to say I sing in a Southern Gospel Quartet. Okay. Okay. And so you have a lead singer, you have a bass singer, you have a tenor, which is male part, of course, and you have an alto, which is a female part. And so we sing all around Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky, anywhere we can be asked to to show up and, and sing. Uh, and we've been doing this, this particular group uh, I've been singing with probably about 12 or 13 years. But I really wow. started uh, with a different group back when I was a freshman in high school. Wow. So I've been singing since freshman in high school. Uh, and it's a very unique southern gospel music so you hear of contemporary music contemporary christian music it's different southern gospel is different um and so it's a lot about those four-part harmonies so for instance if you follow lady antebellum if you like Uh country music i'm a big country music fan as well but like lady antebellum yes nashville they've got all those parts coming together well southern gospel is the same way you're bringing those different parts together so I love it, and like I said, has been definitely a passion, and just, you know, praising the Lord and worship, but we go everywhere. Horse barns, you know, <laughs> we, we have sung parking lots at uh, the Walmart parking lot, you name it. You, you can sing and praise the Lord anywhere, and so I love it. So you're trying to tell me that unless I can get your other three people on, you're not even going to sing me a little note? I'll send you a CD. We got no. there you go well then i'm gonna throw we it can on link it this podcast <laughs> we can yeah. link it in the uh show notes we'll link it in the show notes for sure i will yeah, send you, you a cd that'll be okay. fun okay. that'll be All fun right. but no uh we we do we love doing what we do the other thing i love and i'm passionate about is innovation in law firms mm-hmm. uh couldn't deny that and blockchain that is one of my most recent passions uh and i am really trying to learn as much as i possibly can I do some speaking to ALA chapters, have spoken at some of our conferences in the past on blockchain, got sucked into that by one of the partners here in the law firm about 2015 or 16. She was a chemical uh, or is a 
chemical engineer turned IP patent lawyer, and she really knew all about it and walked into my office one day and said something about blockchain. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so from there, learned a lot from, from her. So well, I don't know if that covers enough. That and is family are, and kids and, and baseball well, I mean, and all that talk stuff. about Talking about having two passions that are so far apart from each other and that create that like far, far left brain and far, far right brain uh, make you definitely a more well-rounded person yeah. than I am because I've, <laughs> Rob is very creative. I have no creative skills and cannot sing. So oh, uh, I love I, it. I, I, I admire that. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. Well, I hope your listeners decide to come to Nashville because it is an amazing city and there's so many things going on here. But yes, we would love to have you here and look me up if you do. We had an ALA annual conference that's going to be there in a couple of years. Yes, absolutely. This will be our third annual conference here over the years. So, yep, it's all good. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Most Illegal Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you like and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can also check us out online on mostlylegalpodcast.com where you can sign up for our email list, get weekly recaps, and get some of your very own Mostly Legal swag.